Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Mm. Uh, on today's show, gene therapy. Yes, again, what are we learning? Where are we right now? What are the experts saying? What are patients What am saying? I saying? What is Amy saying? What's, what is Amy up to these days when it comes to gene therapy? Well, we're going to talk about that, and you'll hear my catch-up with blood brother and frequent flyer on the show, Luke Pembroke, on the brink of him leaving for, dare I say, the adventure of a lifetime. What a tease. Right now. What a tease. <laughs> and you got to wait for it. It is coming up a little bit later. First, we have news producer and thalassemia advocate Nina Maria Baldalamenti, and she joins Amy for a great interview. And she lives up to her name. Oh, good. She's adorable, and that name, she's fantastic. So stick around for that. MASAC, the National Hemophilia Foundation's Medical and Scientific Advisory Council, they met for the first time in 2022 earlier this month. I fired up the old coffee pot and laptop to virtually <laughs> join them in their East Coast meeting at 5 a.m. Pacific. That was a blast. That's insane. That's when I love to hear about science. Also, uh, dear listeners, just so you know, PJL was psyched That's to true. be invited to the MASAC meeting. Yeah, I'm like saying, oh, I had to wake up early, but I was actually like really happy about it. I know so. you were psyched. <laughs> uh, and lastly, Joshua Sterling Bragg. He's back again with the season one finale of our Let's Talk Mental Health segment made possible by Sanofi. It's a packed show, so much to get to. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. And remember to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to those podcasts. You can listen to us, actually, right on the Facebook page. You can do that. Which is fancy. <laughs> and as always, if you have suggestions for topics or guests, we want to hear from you. Please uh, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. And listeners, I want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website. You may have heard of it. Bleedingdisorders.com, mm. where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. And boy, oh boy, these journeys have more options and more complexities I am appreciating that with novel therapy development in a way unlike ever before. And you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though, it's probably not needed, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Patrick, we have a packed show. I know we have to get to it. But before we do... You've been solo daddying. Yes, I have. And so we're all curious on if you're still alive. The <laughs> if the baby's alive. Uh, best I know, baby's alive. Great, great, uh, great. 60-ish hours in and <laughs> we're, hours. she's alive, I'm alive, dog's alive. Some great. of us are recently showered, so most of us have been fed. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's going, it's going well. You know, there's nighttime wake-ups. We're coping without mom. We haven't yeah. been without mom for this stretch yet. Yeah. Some of the FaceTimes make us very upset. Oh. Some of them feel more grounding. Okay. And, um, you know, we've got a good relationship. She likes being with me. I like being with her. So it's like not hard. It just, yeah. there, there's just not time. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm here. I'm with yeah. her. I'm accounting for her. I'm accounting for him. I'm 
commuting, I'm doing laundry or I'm sleeping. You know, yeah. like there's just it's just it's like that single parent life, but for me it's only a few days, so I can't can't really complain. No, that's great. But it's a lot of fun. It's also a great confidence builder, you yeah. know. It makes me feel like a a better dad to be going through this with her. So knock wood that it can we can finish the week strong. We're recording this on Wednesday morning. Knock wood <laughs> that when you hear this Friday or there after we've finished the week strong and uh, I'm still feeling quite as glowing about the whole thing as I am right now. That's great. Most of you guys know Natalie, Patrick's wife, who used to co-host yeah. the show and she's back to work. She's back to work. Which is really exciting for her. Yeah. And yeah, so we're just excited for you. You New- had a trip too, speaking of people going places. Yes. Yes, we had, so um, believe our parent company here at Bloodstream Media, we do um, film production. Some of you all know that. And we had our first production shoot of the year. And I will just like to say that we were a bit rusty. At one point, our cameraman, Josh Bragg, who also is the... um, uh, Let's talk in cinematography. He does yes, it all. Yes, he does it all. But at one point, he was like, oh, I forgot to hit record. So it was like a bunch <laughs> wow. of B-roll. Kind of yeah, a bunch of B-roll. He's like, great. I didn't get that. Drama got it. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. No, we were fine. It was great. Uh, we went to Ohio and had a really lovely time with a patient. So, yeah, we're back out there. And you back in like out a there, rural baby. spot in Ohio, right? Yes, literally uh, Amish country in Ohio. Yeah. We were in did you get some middle. furniture? We did not get any furniture, but okay. we were in the middle of rush hour. Oh. And there were horses and buggies everywhere. They wow. went to like a horse auction. There was a, ho- there was a horse auction that yes. day. Yes, and we didn't see the auction, but we saw the traffic jam. Hmm. And it was spectacular. And you know, if you're not prepared, like I wasn't prepared that it was Amish country. So to like see a horse and buggy, I was psyched. Absolutely. Absolutely psyched. It was great. But anyway, it was lovely. It was charming, rolling hills, rolling, you know. Beautiful. How did you feel? Did you feel rusty? No, I I was totally fine. I didn't have to do anything. I kind of, I like, I don't have to. Yes, I don't. I'm not. (laughs) Listener, dear listeners, I don't do anything technical. I don't do anything with cameras. So I just stand there and and I have to talk. I have to schmooze, which is great. Is what I do. But yeah, I don't have to set up cameras and I don't have to set up lights. Uh, they just bring me along for my personality, I think. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you got you got to bring that personality to Amish country and see <laughs> yeah. some horses and some buggies. And yeah. See, a horse auction. I will never forget, I'm blanking on his name. I wish I could remember it. My apologies. But one of the, th- I think one of the hardest t- things I've ever laughed at in my life was doing a powering through panel at, I think it was an NHF meeting, I don't know, five, six years ago. And this guy telling a story about his grandfather winning a bear at a bear auction. <gasps> and I was like, stop story. What's a bear auction? This is a thing. When do these happen? A live bear? Uh, yes. Or li- no, and he like I don't had a bear. That. He like had a bear in the no. backyard. This guy like grew up with his grandfather like having a no. bear until I think at some point someone was like, "Oh, the bear's kind of a problem," and they had to <gasps> rehome the bear. I, 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 it was just a flat. Also, that feels flagrant to me. I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> I can promise you, it wasn't about animal auctions. <laughs> I don't know how we got there, but then there was nothing else that I could think about or talk about. That was it. That was our only topic from that point forward. Was it a black bear? You know, I'm going to have to go back to the powering through to find out. I'm sure it was a black bear, like a little teeny black bear. Yeah, it may have been. Oh, my god! It may gosh. have been. But, you know, a horse auction, I can wrap my head around a yeah, little more yeah, quickly. Yeah. A bear auction, I don't know why you need a bear. No, that feels, that feels, that feels like one inch removed from Tiger King. You know what I mean? You're on the way. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, on the, you're on the path. You relate to that show more than I want you to. <laughs> Speaking of shows, I know it's, we've got a big one here to get to. Amy, I'm officially on board. I have started my consumption of F1 Drive to Survive. (gasps) 
season two, episode six. I have catching up to do. I know the new season just started. I'm trying to avoid as much information now that I know people's names and teams and have some history. I'm just— The season just started, PJL. I'm trying to stay away so that I can catch up on the the show and then jump into the— Because the season goes for months and months and months. Months and months and months and months. I'll be caught up in a matter of weeks. Oh, my gosh. As you guys remember, I am a huge F1 racing fan now Mm -hmm. because of that show Drive to Survive, which is like the greatest commercial for that sport of Mm -hmm. all time. But I am into it, and this season is lit, son. It's lit. (laughs) So you're a big reason that I've eventually gotten to watching it, you and Rob. So uh, more on that later. Okay. Um, but let's get into the the meat of the matter, so to speak. So I want to just m- mention the Maysac thing up top here. So Maysac for for new listeners or, or people who have forgotten or have just never l- cared to listen to us before we talk about Maysac. <laughs> or like don't care what Maysac is. <laughs> How dare you? you. So the National Hemophilia Foundation, they have a medical and scientific advisory council. It was created first in 1954. And their goal is to issue recommendations and advisories on treatment, research, and other general health concerns for the community. To date, they have published over 400 communications. And so they meet, I don't know if it's quarterly or less frequent, I don't know the exact cadence, but when they meet, they're looking at new recommendations as well as updates to existing recommendations. Concerns are being raised. There were various advocates who were part of this meeting. I was just an an observer, but there were also people who were there who are not on MASAC, but they wanted to bring forward to MASAC, hey, this is a thing that's happening and we're struggling with insurance companies because of this thing. If there was guidance from MASAC around it and something we could point to, then maybe we could, you know, be better advocates. MASAC may say, well, in recommendation 267, we say this. Is that not working and why? Should we change it? Do we need a new thing? So that's what these meetings do. And it's a best of the best. Uh, from our medical and scientific um, contingent in our community. So it's a very impressive group of people. Have you ever attended one of those, Amy? Oh, no, I'm not cool enough to attend a MASAC meeting. You definitely are cool enough. We can change that. But (sighs) I wanted to, uh, I did want to note Steve Pipe, who is and has been the chair of MASAC for the last mm, number of years. And a frequent Bloodstream Media contributor. Yes. He's done Ask the Expert interviews. He's been on this show multiple times. You also will hear him on the current episode of the Global Hemophilia Report. We'll talk more about that later. But this was his last as chair. So that's just kind of like an interesting note. Mm-hmm. And Amy Dunn, a hematologist, pediatric hematologist who uh, will be on Bloodstream later this year and will also be on the Global Hemophilia Report, she will now be taking over as chair, was welcomed warmly many times. People were like, Amy, you got a lot on your plate because my goodness, there was a lot going on in that meeting. Um, but more than anything, I wanted to highlight gene therapy. And, you know, I said in the intro, it's like, here we are again, we're talking about it. I'm, I'm allowing my own exhaustion with even just saying those two words back to back (laughs) come forward a little bit because we have been talking about it for a very long time and at times it feels like are we just are are there new things to talk about what are we what's actually happening but uh, Glenn Pierce from the WFH he's had many titles born with hemophilia scientist biotech uh, entrepreneur and the vice president of medical for the World Federation of Hemophilia, he did some breakdown on the most recent data that's made, been made available, including phase three data from clinical trials. So that's, that's you know, far along stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of the data that the FDA a couple years ago wanted to see, they wanted more data from one of the trials in particular. Mm-hmm. That, that data is now available, and he was able to present that. I don't want to get into exactly what he said or what my notes captured him saying because I, I listened to him and I'll tell you more about how you can do that. 
Um, actually, I'll tell you right now. You can hear him on the Global <laughs> Hemophilia Report. We have a clip from Glenn on Global Hemophilia Report talking about specifically adeno-associated uh, viral vector therapy, so AAV gene therapy, which is the most common and most advanced form of gene therapy for hemophilia currently being looked at. And here's what Glenn has to say about that on the Global Hemophilia Report. I am cautious about AAV therapy. When these clinical trials got started in the 2010s, we didn't have the novel products that we have today. I think it's very important with all of the therapies that we have at our disposal to really take a very in-depth look at the benefit-risk ratio on an individual patient basis. That's a great clip from Glenn. And I feel like that is aligned with what everyone's starting to say. And it feels more, not like as a cautionary tale, but more mm-hmm. of a, um, we're entering into a phase where it's truly about patient choice mm-hmm. and what your lifestyle is, what your goals are, what your objectives are, um, your personal joints, your personal body, and what you decide to do. And so for the patient community, the caregiver community, more and more, it's not just like a standard, this is how we treat um, our hemophilia. It's going to become a choice. And so to be as engaged in like the latest data in the latest science and also to have conversations with your hematologist is just becoming more and more I think important and fruitful and so to really arm yourself with that knowledge and um, to make decisions based on what you want to do you know as a human person which is very exciting so that's what I kind of get from that not as it's a cautionary tale but it's more like it's it's not going to be the end-all be-all it's going to be a part of like an arrangement of treatments that you can choose from. Exactly. And as he says at the end of the clip, it comes down to what is the risk-benefit ratio for each individual patient. And here in America and in Europe and places where there are numerous therapeutics and access to them and reimbursement systems in place, as you said, the choice, there's, there's options. On the other hand, most people with hemophilia in the world don't have all these options. And they actually stand to benefit from gene therapy much differently than, say, I do here in the United States. And Glenn makes that point very clearly as well. Let's hear that clip too. The majority of people with hemophilia in low-income countries have died. That is a fact. And therefore, aren't discoverable by any sort of outreach. Others are discoverable by outreach. They're living uh, with severe disability, severe joint damage, They make it into their teens, into their 20s, incapable of working, incapable of dealing with life because of all of the damage that they've had from uncontrolled bleeding. That's the population that needs gene therapy. That's such a powerful clip from Glenn and what authority he has to make that statement. And I really think that it's a mind shift here, especially in the States and, um, in Europe, I think, of of what who is going to benefit the most from this science and the pathway of getting it there to um, the people and the countries that need it is still extremely nebulous. And I think um, that's a conversation that we're not having as much. And bravo to Glenn, of course, who has always been a champion. Um, but I, I just think that's something that we should continue to go back to over and over and over of how, how do we get it in the hands of the people who will actually benefit. Glenn speaks more to that point as well as more about AAV gene therapy and other novel therapy development in the Global Hemophilia Report. Episode 2 just came out last week. And as I mentioned before, 
Steve Pipe, who we talked about, he's on it. Amy Dunn, the incoming MASAC chair, she's on an upcoming episode about bone and joint health. And Luke Pembroke, he's on it as well to talk about his experience as a person who has been dosed with gene therapy. He is, of course, today's guest as well. We're going to speak with Luke later in the show, but before we get to that, we do have this interview, Amy, with thalassemia advocate and news producer, Nina Maria Baldalamenti. What a name, as Great you said. Name. I, I just As soon as I feel like I could pronounce it correctly, which hopefully I am, Nina, it's just so much fun to say. Yes. What and, can you tell us? you know, listeners, dear listeners, <laughs> um, it was so enjoyable speaking with Nina because she is a newer advocate. She kind of discovered mm. her community. You know, she's in her early 20s, um, but she discovered it late, later in sure. her lifespan right now. And so she, like, has all this passion. And for us in the hemophilia community, some of us are like, uh, wah, wah. You know, blah, 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 gene therapy. Blah, Is that me? Blah. Are you doing a me impression? Yes, my, that's my impression of Patrick. <laughs> um, no, but it was just so inspiring to talk with her and uh, to hear obviously more about, you know, thalassemia and hemophilia are really, you know, very related in terms of, you know, what's happening in our bodies. So it's mm-hmm. fun. It's fun. It's fun to hear from new folks. And so we hope you get, we hope you get some encouragement from her. All right, let's hear it. Here's Nina. Nina, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Bloodstream. We're so excited to have you here. Is this your first podcast experience? Hello. Yeah, it is. Thank Ooh. you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, this is uh, I'm a newbie to the podcast. I'm super excited. Well, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us where you're from, what's your background. Tell us a bit. Yeah, so I'm originally from Michigan, the Detroit area. Um, In the last year, I actually moved to Indianapolis for my job. Um, I'm a TV news producer, and I have beta thalassemia major. And tell us a bit about thalassemia for those of us that might not be too familiar. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty rare um, blood disorder. Um, It originates in the Mediterranean, and basically... My red blood cells, so your red blood cells um, carry hemoglobin, which carries oxygen um, to your other organs and throughout your body. And the blood cells that my body makes, the hemoglobin doesn't carry that oxygen, doesn't hold that oxygen. So I, for treatment, get blood transfusions um, with good blood cells. Keep me energized. <laughs> <laughs> and what um, what was your diagnosis like? Were you diagnosed as a child? Was it more late in life? Yeah, so I was a baby. I was, I believe, about six months old um, when I was diagnosed. And with thalassemia, you know, you'll you'll notice pretty early on because your body isn't getting that oxygen. It it doesn't have what it needs, you know, to to live properly Mm -hmm. and to to give your body what it needs. So, and they noticed that I, as a baby, you know, I started acting lethargic and you know, just uh, not as energetic. And so that's when they started doing tests and um, realized that I did have thalassemia and started treatment right away. Mm. What have your challenges been like over the years? Yeah, so I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I, I thank my parents greatly because they instilled in me that I can be normal, that I am mm. normal, and that I can do 
you know, anything I want to do and, and to not let this get in the way. Um, but of course, you know, there are symptoms, there are obstacles that, that get in the way, but I never kind of let them, sure, they were challenges, but I, ne- I never let them really take over. But, um, you know, once, so I get transfusions about every four weeks. It can differ, you know, between patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically towards the end of my transfusion, I can, I can start to feel it. You know, mm-hmm. my body can start to feel that I'm more tired. And depending on the month or, you know, it really varies what my hemoglobin will be, which kind of determines, you know, my energy level and how much oxygen my body's getting. And on those months that it's lower, I can be kind of nauseous. I just feel it really all throughout my body. Mm. But luckily I've had really good treatment that we can kind of gauge, you know, not to take it too far so that I feel like that. I've had um, a few instances where I faint or I get nauseous and I, I might puke. Um, That doesn't happen too often, but yeah. Have you always... I don't want to say identified with it, but have you always talked freely about it in school and uh, with classmates or with friends? Or has it been something that has been more secretive um, that you've kept and it's just now you're starting to talk about it? What's your journey been like with disclosing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I actually, so for most of my life, it was more, more of a hidden thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really told, you know, friends about it, close family knew about it. Um, but it was really just kept more private. And I think, um, my parents kind of did it that way to protect me. I think it can be challenging when people know, you know, there's something different about you. And, um, I think too, you know, I get blood transfusions and for some people that can be kind of, especially in my parents' time, it was kind of taboo because it was kind of just past the AIDS epidemic and we didn't really know a lot about it. So I think they were, you know, nervous that there was going to be some judgment around it. And even as an adult, it is, you know, kind of nerve wracking, you know, what people might think or are they going to pity me right away or, you know, but um, just more recently, I'd say in the past past few years, I've decided to be more open about it. And um, really, it's become something that, you know, if it comes up in conversation, I'm going to bring it up, even if it's a stranger, it's my coworker or a friend, whoever it is, uh, someone I'm dating, you know, I think from for me, I've realized just to be honest, just to be upfront, because, right. you know, people don't always know or don't, you know, there's, there's a need for awareness for these right. things. And so, you know, they, they see me and they don't, obviously they don't usually don't realize it until I tell them. And then they kind of get intrigued and they want to know more about it is what I've noticed. So that's kind of how I've gone about it lately. And I've even more recently realized that there's this whole thing called patient advocacy and awareness (laughs) and like growing up, I was so like, it's a whole thing. There's a whole whole world out there. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think too, because because my condition is so rare, yeah. Um, I really didn't know anyone who had what I had. Who had it? Yeah. When was the first time you met someone with thalassemia? So there was one older gentleman when I was younger mm-hmm. that they had introduced me to at the hospital where I get treatments. Mm-hmm. And he was the one person that I did. They kind of wanted to see like, you know, he's older and like, you can, you know, you can grow up with this and you can be okay. But yeah. um other than him, I think I had one person, I was probably about, 
I want to say like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. And there was another kid that they had introduced me to. Um, but since then, I I really like haven't interacted with anyone um, up until recently um, because it, there's only like a handful of patients at my clinic yeah. that have thalassemia. Yeah. So yeah. do you have have you found like are you one of the have you found a Facebook group? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. I know. It's so exciting. Yeah. I yes. recently got connected with like um, Facebook groups. Yeah. And um, just like other like companies that are working on treatments and mm. they have advocacy groups and you guys. It's so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a whole new world. Yeah. Now that you've, <laughs> you've like gotten into it, you've like broken through a little bit. What, what's the sense? Like what are some of the unmet needs in the thalassemia community from your, from your perspective? Yeah. I would say just awareness mm. and just even, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people who are in the community know that there's a community, but I didn't sure. until I was 24 years old. Sure. So I think it would have been, if if it was more widely known mm. and more widely accessible, that there are people out there like me. And, and just, I think just relating to other people like, you know, oh, do you ever you know, do you ever get really tired when you work out? And like, oh my gosh, yeah, I get that too. Or whatever it is, you know, just knowing that other people out there yes. feel the same way you do, or just the struggles of how do you explain this to other people? When do you explain this to other people? No one ever taught me that. Like, yes. I don't know how to figure it figure out Figure it out. Own. Yeah. So just having that kind of support system yeah. and, and just creating awareness throughout the world. I mean, there's, you know, I know a lot of people have probably heard that there's, you know, a blood shortage right now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with blood disorders automatically just think like, oh, the blood is just used for like people with surgery or like really like emergency, like if someone gets hurt and bleeds out. But like there's actually such a huge need for blood to to keep people alive like me. And I don't think people really realize that. 100%. What has the blood shortage been like for you? What has that? So I I think that I've been lucky. My clinic hasn't had too much. They've been come to the point where they're on a day-by-day day day basis. Um, and actually, the first time around where there was a shortage, <laughs> you know, we had tried to kind of push my appointments mm -hmm. farther apart, my treatments farther apart. And that did not work. And I, so I do four weeks, we tried to push it to five and I could immediately feel the difference. And that's when it got kind of scary for me mm. because I realized, okay, well, if they're trying to push it and, you know, trying to, obviously they're trying to save, you know, savor what they have right. and distribute it properly. But that's when it's like, okay, well, right now it's like kind of a precaution, but if it would get to the point where, no, you have to go five weeks or, or God forbid more, right. that's scary because then I'm just, I'm living, feeling unwell right, more often <laughs> than, than I have to now. And um, I actually, another instance where um, I kind of, felt that fear a little bit. A few months back, actually towards the end of the year last year, I got sick. And so I don't have a spleen because that that can be a result of thalassemia. If your spleen gets enlarged, they remove it. Um, but because of that, there are like a handful of viruses that my body can no longer fight against. And so if I get a, a fever, 
of a certain degree, then I have to go right to the hospital, right to the ER, make sure that I get the proper antibiotics Mm. just in case it's one of those viruses. Mm. Um, So I had gotten a fever. And um, so I took myself to the ER um, as... As, as you do. do. That's uh, the procedure. <laughs> and they actually tested me for COVID mm-hmm. at the time, of course. And I had COVID. Um, so, yes. Bless your heart, <laughs> Nina. <laughs> I, I got the Rona, <laughs> which is scary within itself, Yeah, we're right? for real. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, at least they knew it wasn't one of those viruses. Sent me back home. Oh, okay. So with Corona, so COVID wasn't one of those viruses. Right. It, it's not one that, it is one that you can fight against without a spleen. Oh. Right. Yeah. It's really, I learned it's like something my, today. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> something new every day. <laughs> okay. Um, so they sent me back home and I had COVID for about a week. And I could tell after that week, week and a half mm-hmm. had passed, I could tell my body was tired. Mm. I could tell. I I just felt like I I needed a transfusion. You knew it, you knew your body. Knew. It's you yeah, absolutely it's hard knew. To explain, but right? Yeah, yeah. I've I've been through it before. I know what my body yes. feels like when I need transfusion. I'm tired. I just feel off. I, my stomach. I'm not. It's just a feeling. And I knew. And so I went back to the ER. I explained my situation. And so they test my hemoglobin, which is kind of how they gauge how much blood I need. And it was low. But because it wasn't under a certain amount, they they wouldn't give me the blood mm. um, because it wasn't at a, a dangerously low level that they felt like they needed to save it, you know, in, in, if, in case there was a more severe situation where someone needed it. And obviously, I, I do understand that, but it's it's scary. And I don't know, it's almost like heartbreaking because it's like we don't have what we need to help these issues. And uh, granted, I was fine, but you know, how many, how long can I go until I, I really right. don't feel well, or I can't get myself like, you can't function. How long do I have to wait. Right. Yeah. Right. We experienced this in the hemophilia um, and bleeding disorder community. Um, so I'm sure you can relate. What's it like going to an ER or an urgent care and trying to explain what you need? And you're probably more of an expert on thalassemia than they are. What's, what's it like to advocate for yourself in those situations? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is, you know, it's kind of funny and weird to, you know, when I go to like a different kind of doctor or where I go to my family doctor or whatever it may be, even they, you know, ask me and they're curious because they don't know about it either. Yeah. And you go to the ER and they, they have an idea, but a lot of times I think they have to kind of do their own research. Is that unnerving? Not- is that terrifying? Um, Yes or are you just no. like used to it? You're just yes used no. to it. Yeah. Yeah. So it it is a little bit where it's yeah. like it's scary when you have to explain yourself and it's kind of like, are they gonna understand what I'm going through? Are they right. gonna understand what I need? You know, again, like in that situation where they couldn't treat me, it's kind of like I felt misunderstood mm. almost, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But Luckily, I've had really great doctors and really great specialists, hematologists that that have taken such good care of me, and I've I've had it for so long where I kind of I kind of got a grip on it. You know, I yeah. know what I need. I know, and and so because I can advocate for myself and because I I am confident in my own understanding of what I need, that makes me feel better. 
in addition to, I have these doctors where I can call them and say, hey, can you help talk to this doctor and explain what I need? Um, I've always had such, I, I, I'm, I just feel so lucky and so blessed with the physicians that I've had take care of me. They, they'll give me their phone, their cell phone number, and I can call them in the middle of the night yes. when I'm, I'm not feeling well. And, yeah. and they're, they're awake. They're telling me what I need to do, you know, go to the ER, give them my number. That's great. You know, so that's luckily, great. Yeah. That's wonderful. Want to thank you for sharing your story and to to meet you. It's so fun to meet you. Yeah. Um, just to kind of close, tell me a little bit about becoming a patient advocate. You know, this is kind of like a new world. What has it meant to you, and what are you hoping that you can accomplish in the future? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's so new to me, and it's so exciting. It's so exciting to explore this whole world, and um, I actually. Kind of my first little experience, I guess you could say, with patient advocacy was on a very minor level. Um, but my doctor had explained to me, like, have you considered patient advocacy? And even within our own clinic, you know, mm. um, there are a lot of young kids that that don't. So I get treated at a children's hospital, actually. And so there are a lot of kids there and there are kids that have thalassemia. And he kind of explained, like, you know, would you be interested in that? And I said, absolutely. And he said, I'm I getting really goosebumps. Like I love yeah. that. It's yeah. the best thing in the whole wide world. Yes. It feels so good. Ooh. So he actually asked me to speak to one of them. Oh. And it, it was almost, it just like blew my mind. Yeah. I, I don't know what I was expecting, yeah. but I was almost surprised when he asked me questions like, can you drive or do you live alone? <laughs> do you have a job? Oh. And I'm like, what? you know, at first, at first thought you're like, oh, that's so silly. But no, it's not. Cause like, he just wants to know that he can be normal. He's going to be normal. Yes. Yes. And that just like, I'm, I'm like getting chills just talking about it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just knowing that like that, that's the, that little conversation created a huge impact. And just the idea that, you know, I can do this and, and as a group, we can do this for other patients, for other kids and adults too. It's just so exciting to, to really, you know, get into this world where we just understand each other and we can help each other out. And just, it's, it's really about the little things and it's about knowing someone's there to support you. Knowing someone understands what you're going through. Yes. You're, you're not crazy. You're not alone. Yes. You have other people, you have a whole community rallying around you going through the same thing and it's it's just really exciting and I I can't wait to see where else it takes me and and just what other avenues that that patient advocacy you know will be opened up to Nina it was lovely to meet you thank you so much for sharing your story and I hope we get to see you soon in the future at some point absolutely I thank you so much for inviting me on I just I'm so excited and I'm just so happy to talk to you guys and be able to share my story and share, you know, more about beta thalassemia and all of that. So thank you for what you do as well, just creating an avenue um, for patient advocacy. And I absolutely would love to see you guys again soon. Absolutely. And, you know, we, in the hemophilia community, we call each other bro blood brothers and blood sisters. And since your blood is, you know, a mess like our blood, you can be one of us. I love that. <laughs> Woo!
Isn't she great? Isn't she adorable? She has so much energy. And yeah, she's just, she was a good one. She was a really good Good one. Good find. Yes! (laughs) Uh, All right, listeners, we are here. Let's talk season one, segment 12 of 12. It's here with Josh Bragg is back. Let's talk. Let's talk's a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi and aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorders community. For people living with or caring for someone with a bleeding disorder, the impact on mental health is largely invisible and not often discussed. Quick pause from the copy. I was on a conversation yesterday with Dana Francis, social worker from Northern California. He hosted men's groups back in the 80s during the contamination crisis. Social worker legend. Yeah, he he just retired. Um, He's featured in Let's Talk. I'm working with him on another project. And yesterday we just had a catch up because he and I actually have not done a like hey, so tell me more about your story and your humanity and just connecting. We spent the majority of our hour talking actually specifically about masculinity, mm. um, but as a drop down from mental health and mental illness. And I just, I, we, I ended it saying, can you make sure to like call me again in three weeks and let's just keep doing this because we need to keep having these kinds of conversations. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here with Let's Talk in partnership with Sanofi. Let's Talk shares tips on how to care for you or your loved one's mental health and strives to eliminate the stigma associated with this discussion within the bleeding disorders community and beyond. And now over to Josh for the finale to season one of Let's Talk. Time is a funny thing. It's the same all over the world, but depending on where you stand at any given moment, it's completely different everywhere that you're not. I found myself wondering this morning about how we establish time, how every single location on the planet found a unified system through designated time zones to say noon is when the sun is highest in the sky and the sun will set at the end of the day and we will sleep at night and every day for half the year the sun will set earlier by one minute but the other half of the year it will set later by one minute and then we'll have these solstices where the days are longest and shortest and celebrate those with dancing and good food. I'm getting a little carried away already. So... To answer my question from a second ago with a quick Google search, Egyptians started measuring days with sundials in 1500 BC, but it took some math to really decide on measurements for an hour and minutes and seconds. So it wasn't until 1400 years later that a man named Hipparchus or Hippocrates decided on dividing time into 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark based on the equinox. And then almost 2000 years later was when we invented time zones in order to make train schedules more accurate. And all this is fascinating and certainly has shed a lot of light on my morning pre-coffee thoughts. But the truth of the matter is, this isn't even the kind of time I want to talk about today. Whew. Let's talk. Today is a huge milestone for me. Today marks a year of talking about mental health on Bloodstream. Twelve segments, each one tracking my personal discoveries and reflections on the film Let's Talk Mental Health. And with a smash of champagne on the proverbial hull of the documentary, I'm setting her free to sail the seas of the community on her own. I'm looking at this episode as the end of season one of Let's Talk. And in celebration of getting funded for season two, I want to reflect on the time we've had together to give this film and the people we've met one last spotlight to shine in. This is certainly not a complete departure, and I suspect we'll hear these voices again as time goes on, because time has a funny way of bringing us full circle. And there's that word again. Time. 
But it's not hours we're measuring today, it's distance. When we made this film at the end of 2019, I was just a happy cameraman, excited to be doing my part to capture and tell these impactful stories from Chris, Kira, Bobby, Dana, Ivan, Esther. I wasn't planning to be impacted the way that I was. I wasn't planning on creating content for a year reflecting on these stories and commonalities revealed within. No, I just simply was excited to meet new people, hear new stories, and make something pretty to look at. Time has changed that project for me. It has aged like a vintage port, sampled throughout stages as it continues to evolve. I recently shared a clip from the film on TikTok, the opening moment where Chris tells us about his temptation to end his life as a kid. I woke up before sunrise and, and something drew me out to this mountain, to this chimney right here. And I, I climbed up it, took my spot in the edge right by the cliff face, and it just felt so perfect to me. In that moment, I, I decided that, yes, this is that moment I want to die. One of the first comments I got was, I hope he's okay. It hadn't crossed my mind before, but this comment made me realize that to anyone watching this clip for the first time, this was the present. The moment that we captured of Chris standing in the spot where his life changed forever is frozen in time for anyone who wants to watch it, to an extent. Because from where I stand and from where Chris stands, that's the past, and many, many more things have come to pass since then. Hey, Chris, how have you been? Been good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. I had kind of a trying year. I had a house fire, and that was terrible, but we made through it, and then I've been having some medical issues since then. Um, my back, my knee, my foot, it's all kind of falling apart together. But um, I'm still in high hopes, high spirits, as always. That's good. I mean, it, it, has it been hard to stay in high hopes like that? Not really. I mean, for me, um, my whole life, it, it's... Life is just a roller coaster, right? You got your ups, you got your downs, you got your happy times, you got your bad times. And uh, for me, every time I've had a bad time, I always referenced uh, my life experience, what, what happened to me, my suicide attempt, and um, how I overcame it, and how that changed my entire perspective of, of life. I've always uh, tried to focus on the happiness in life, because even in the worst of times, there's always good things there. And positive things there like um, I had the house fire I said but I had family who took me in and I was able to uh, live with them and I didn't have to worry about you know living in a, a, a hotel or something like that and and the community came together and really really helped us out a lot and it was awesome so yeah there's always you know there's ups and downs in life and at my lowest points in my life I, I always internally kind of reference the story and it it always helps me in one way or another. What is it they say? Time heals all wounds? I don't think that's true. We don't always heal. And I, I don't think the goal should always be to heal. Maybe that's being a little bit too idealistic. From what I've learned over this past year, it's far more important to exist and to feel your feelings and work to embrace them. Maybe that is healing in a way, but for me, the word heal signifies a sense of completion, and I don't think this journey is ever over. It just has to do with this idea that there's something wrong with me. It's really, it's an interesting thing about therapy. By the time they go to therapy, something is so wrong in their life, they just feel miserable. And there's this thing to take it away, I gotta fix it and take it away. And the irony usually has to do with 
No, it is just self-awareness and self-acceptance. It's having to do feeling only the feelings that you have, acknowledging them as real. And then it's about not developing absolute thinking or worldviews. It takes work to be present and mindful, to be aware of our own needs. And for a lot of us, when the going gets really tough, it can feel easier to find an escape from it all. My parents came from El Salvador uh, in the 80s. Uh, they were uh, trying to get away from the Civil War that was destroying the country at the time. My father was a member of the military, so uh, at the age of 15, so he saw a lot of violence and uh, death. Um, his father got tortured and killed in El Salvador. He uh, started drinking and doing a lot of that stuff when, when he was young. So once you know he uh, decided to have family with my mother, you know, all that, all that drinking and drug abuse and post-traumatic stress uh, was really kicking in for him and um, became an, an addict. And uh, we saw a lot of violence at home because of that. This is Ivan speaking. We haven't heard much of his story this year, so I'm going to lean in a little bit and let it play. I would mainly hang out um, with guys that um, I grew up with. And unfortunately, you know, we were involved in the gang life and things like that. So I uh, got, got involved in that kind of stuff as a, as a teenager and just trying to relieve a lot of that anger, that stress, you know, that I had inside. And I felt OK being there with my friends where I felt like I belonged and had support. When I was a child, seven, ten years old, I wanted to play sports. And uh, I wanted to get into soccer. My dad let me get in. Uh, I played for about two, three years, you know, and uh, my father put me as a goalie, so I don't have to run so much. But uh, I still ended up with ankle sprains, and I ended up with arthritis. So uh, when they diagnosed me with mild arthritis, I was devastated. I hated hemophilia at the time. I felt almost like if my life was over because I really wanted to play sports. I wanted to, you know, be a professional soccer player at the time. Once that got taken away, I, all that energy that I had got put into that gang life. Things can feel so critical when we're young. In our teenage years, decisions feel like life and death, and that can lead to thoughts of self-harm or, like Ivan, to finding support in unlikely places. When I was in high school, all I wanted to do was hang out with my skateboarding friends. We wore super baggy jeans, sported chains on our wallets, and painted our hair green from time to time. We were always getting kicked out of business complexes and strip malls for destroying property with our skateboards and blasting punk music too loud. With time and personal growth, I found my path was leading me away from being rebellious as a youth, uh, and eventually it came time to grow up and get my priorities straight. I got a job and then an apartment and started working towards defining a future for myself. My path forward felt murky for a really long time, but eventually, with patience and determination, that existential fog started to lift. But that's not always the case. Occasionally, something surprising comes along and suddenly the path forward becomes as clear as day, reaching straight over the horizon. You always go through stages, I guess, in life. You know, um, when I was 18 years old and I had my daughter and my wife, I was young, uh, I was kind of scared, wasn't sure what to expect, but I knew that I had to work, you know, and I had to take care of my family. And that's what really kept me going. I felt that um, I wasn't happy with my life at the time. And then, you know, when you go through that, 
moment of, you know, seeing that little human that you just created, you know, uh, uh, especially her being a girl. You know, at the time I was, uh, you know, 18 and still involved in the gangs. I thought I was a very a hard ass. I thought I was uh, tough. I never thought that something, you know, could kind of soften me up in a way, you know, make me feel good inside, give me some burst of hope in a way. And um, my daughter did that. I got myself back into school, started working as an ophthalmology technician, kept on moving forward from there. But I had many times in my life where I kind of look back and just think and meditate uh, about how I'm doing with myself, you know, am I progressing, am I, am I, um, doing the right thing for me and my family. Tracking progress takes time. It takes focus. It takes determination. We have to take an active part each day in who we want to be, and we can only benefit from acknowledging that we might not be able to control how it all turns out. I've had tremendous ups and downs this past year, and what I have learned through all of these moments of reflection and self-doubt, through times of mental instability and then stunning clarity, is that talking about it really, truly helps. Seasons change, and as we enter season two of Let's Talk, I'm going to be introducing you to some amazing new people. We're going to talk about different stages of life, from birth to death and everything in between. We're going to talk about relationships and growth, exploration, and intense suffering. And as always, what I can promise is that it'll never get too scary And we'll always approach this with caution and curiosity and a desire for positive change and growth. Thank you to all of the contributors to the Let's Talk mental health documentary, to Debbie De La Riva and to Amy and Patrick for allowing me the space to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you want to learn more about how you can work on your mental health, if you'd like some resources or you want to dive deeper into the documentary yourself, visit letstalkmh.org and click resources. I couldn't be more excited for where we're going next, but that, my friends, will have to wait until next time. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. And thank you, Sanofi, for making Let's Talk possible. Thank you, Josh, for leading the way. And listeners, remember, fret not, Let's Talk will continue next month with season two's introduction, and you'll also be treated to the first installment of our latest segment, The Well, which you heard Josh talk a bit about last time on the show. It's led by Flo's Jessica Lauren Richmond, and it premieres on our very next episode going live on April 8th, so look forward to that as well. That is exciting. Hey, your conversation with Luke Pembroke is coming up next. Mm, Yes, it is. And I just wanted to share that I love Luke. I love that he continues to be so eloquent with his experience with gene therapy and um it's a obviously it's a rarity that he's able to do that but i also just wanted to mention for listeners um to actually check out the global hemophilia report where you can hear luke and it don't be turned off that it's like for scientists or for researchers or for Mm. hematologists Mm -hmm. You know, we, we we talked a little bit about the gene therapy thing, that it's important for us to be educated. And it's just a really, I'm going to use like a corporate word, but it's a digestible way to get information on the la- the latest data, rather. And so um, Luke is a great get. So make sure to listen to um, the full episode. We'll have this little 
baby interview with Luke, so you can uh, get a tease. But it's 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 worth your time. Thank you, Amy. I would agree. And uh, yeah, so enjoy this baby interview with Luke. <laughs> and then when you're done with that, go enjoy um, him and other people you've heard us talk about today on the Global Hemophilia Report. But first, Luke Pembroke. I am now joined by my blood brother from across the pond and one of the world's, certainly the hemophilia world, but I'll just go ahead and say the world's most notable gene therapy recipients <laughs> here in 2022, uh, Luke Pembroke. Luke, welcome back to Bloodstream. How are you this afternoon, sir? I'm good. Thanks very much for having me on again. And yeah, thanks for the the compliment. I mean, that's the dangers of putting yourself out on Twitter moments after you have gene therapy. I didn't really expect that it to blow up as much as it did. But yeah, now a lot of people know about the whole gene therapy thing over the past two years. <laughs> yeah, so let's just lean into it and start with, you know, giving the people what they want, so to speak. So what kind of update can you give us? And it's going to be actually, this This is um, particularly relevant to what I, what I do want to focus on in our conversation, but just kind of start with how are you uh, and what's the great latest and greatest of your experience post-gene therapy and, and where are you in the timeline exactly? So uh, overall, I'm, I'm feeling good. I mean, it's been a, looking back, it's been a tiring two years for many reasons, but that right there sort of lets you know where I am at. It was recently my two-year anniversary since receiving gene therapy, which is crazy to think mm. uh, because Wild. remember that first year, 2020, even the first six months having had gene therapy in the in February and then moving forwards felt so long, you know, being trapped in isolation and then trying to think of Mm -hmm. 2021, which seemingly went by in the blink of an eye for me, trying to get perspective on on what two years post gene therapy really means is it's really it's really strange to think it it's already been that long. I know in the context of gene therapy, it's not a long time, but for for me, it's you know a pretty significant chunk of my life, and uh, and a very significant moment in my life as well. So yeah, it's it's. It's cool to be at the two-year mark as well, as that now means my clinic visits go down to once every six months. So I'm basically back on the same schedule of visits that I was oh, wow. pre-gene therapy. So I feel like now I can finally start to say that. How, how often had it been recently? So for the vast majority of 2021, it was about once every month. And then prior to that, okay, it was sort that's of... Enough. You know, it was well multiple times a week initially. Then it was weekly. Then it was bi-weekly. Then it was once every sort of three weeks, and then it became once every month around probably March last year. And then it was monthly from then on. Which, you know, on the face of it, doesn't seem that much. But you know, when you're having a busy month and you've got a lot of stuff planned in work and personal life, and finally being able to be allowed to do things now and again that monthly visit was just like ah oh, i've got to go to the center again ah oh, it's a it's a monthly visit i've got to go in and have that all done and yeah. they're fairly efficient visits my center are very good to me and i'm i'm continue to be treated like a, a vip whenever i go in so you know i always joke and say that it basically became my second <laughs> home over the past 2 years but yeah i'm i'm very much looking forward to yeah fast pass lane <laughs> like oh here he is just go <laughs> exactly um 
So, yeah, I'm looking forward to only having to go in once every six months because that's how it was before gene therapy. So things are back to quote-unquote normal, I guess, in a way. You know, you said something a couple of weeks ago, I think when we were talking personally um, off mic, you said something about how given the pandemic, it really took a while before you could actually have an opportunity to quote unquote test drive, you know, your your life in this post-gene therapy infusion. Like what was actually different when you weren't just confined to your apartment and having to constantly go to the clinic for checkups and such? When did that start to change? And what does that look like? I imagine now in 2022, two years post-transplant, given where we are related to COVID and all the rest, I imagine now there's even more opportunity for you to test drive life post-gene therapy. But what? when did that start to shift for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quickly, because I know it's what the people really want to hear before I dive into that, <laughs> but I forgot to mention it in the last part. My, my factor levels at the moment, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. Say, I was like, I've forgotten to say it. Uh, forgotten to say it. Uh, factor levels at the moment are sort of within the twenty to twenty-five percent. They fluctuate around there, so they're they're pretty confident. I've stabilised there for now, and long may it continue. Mm. I hope. But that's. I'll have to say that's a, a good level for me on on the face of it in terms of getting to test drive the gene therapy, as you say that that previous year of not really having a chance, uh, well, the first year of, of having gene therapy. But I'd say when I really started to put gene therapy to the test and the world allowed for it, would have been around springtime last year. So probably around April, May. And the the Euros tournament was on and England were doing very well. So there were many games that we we sadly lost in the final, but it meant that we were in pretty much all the games throughout the entire tournament going on through the summer. And it meant that I was able to go to the pub with my friends and all of a sudden realizing, oh, well, I don't have to take a treatment when I leave the house. And it it happened multiple times. I'd be going down the stairs in my apartment block and just be like, oh, I haven't taken my factor, have I? And then suddenly your brain goes, no, because you don't need to, which was really cool. And I, I enjoyed getting surprised by that every time. And then I started running more regularly. I used to really enjoy running when I was younger. And then my ankle uh, gave me so much grief that it wouldn't really be comfortable enough to do it. Or I'd just be really hesitant about causing more damage or having a bleed. Uh, I signed up to a personal trainer and started going to the gym really regularly and you know, squatting more than my body weight, doing all these things that I would have had this kind of anxiety or or niggling away in the back of my mind around, you know, is the hemophilia going to be a problem? And and I know mm-hmm. I could have probably done that whilst on Profi, but I think the sort of mental benefit of having gene therapy in the tank is something that I, I didn't really expect to have as much of an impact on me as it has. So that's that's been really cool. And and it took a while to get used to it, you know, going to the gym and, and lifting heavier weights and getting DOMS or getting a bit of ankle pain from just sort of needing to wake the joint up and get some mobility into it. It's easy to go, oh, am I going to cause a problem here? Am I going to cause a bleed? And how much can I push this? And it eventually got to the point where I found... Earlier in the day, I was waking up and I had my, you know, arthritic joints and my left ankle's playing me up and it's painful to walk around on it, but I'm 
I say to myself, I need to get into the gym. I've got a session today. And it was crazy coming out of the gym in less pain than I did going into it because mm. the actual benefit of being able to do that exercise really helped. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that gene therapy is this, this magic wonder drug that means you'll suddenly be really dedicated to go to the gym. You still have to do that yourself. <laughs> but um, it, it's, been, it's been nice having, it's starting to get used to that perhaps security blanket that gene therapy could be for me when in the past that that security blanket was you know doing prophylaxis three times a week and having to take the time out to do that was always a bit of a bore uh, to say the least mm -hmm. and i'm hearing the opening up of possibilities no gene therapy is not going to change your mental attitude toward fitness or exercise but it may open up in your mind the possibility of fitness and exercise in a way it didn't previously exist. And that's significant. That's substantial. And when we talk about quality of life, to me, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's the opportunity to live a more unbound life, a life more free of hemophilia. If we simply stop bleeding episodes from occurring, spontaneous ones anyway, we're not doing the whole job, all right? There's that mental component. And as you speak about the benefit of gene therapy, the mental component seems as strong as the actual physiological to me. Can you share, I know, so I've got some insider information. I know that you've got something coming up imminently here that I don't think would have been on your horizon would it not have been for gene therapy. Can you share a little bit about Luke's big adventure that's coming up? Yes, yeah, so I... <laughs> decided last year that it had been too long since I traveled and instead of booking a nice luxurious holiday I decided that I was going to go spend two months in the Amazon jungle with a, uh, a research foundation that do a lot of conservation work out there and I was lucky enough to visit the Amazon jungle about 10-11 years ago on a on a short trip and we spent about eight days or seven or eight days in the Amazon. And that was back when I was on plasma-derived factor and the whole trying to keep factor cool in mm. the middle of a jungle, which didn't even have a fridge, <laughs> was an interesting one. And now I all imagine. of a sudden I have this this opportunity to to go and and live in the, the Amazon for two months. And I'll only need to take a a small bag of emergency treatment, which I hope I don't have to use at any point, but that's another thing. You know, I've still got to remember that I, I technically live with mild hemophilia and, and hopefully I won't right. need the factor, but I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to, to, to go on this trip and, and get involved in the, the research they've got going on out there and, and hemophilia be an afterthought. Whereas in the past, even on holidays and planning, you know, two week trips, for example, I think when it comes to those sorts of things, that's that's when I hear from other guys in the community as well that your hemophilia really starts to come to the forefront of your mind again and you and you realize you have to do a lot more preparation than a normal person. So yeah, I'm, mm. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully I make it back and I can avoid the the deadly spiders and snakes out there and and not have to worry about the hemophilia at all, which is it's. It, I'm just looking for, I'd be happy going anywhere at the moment just to, again, kind of road test the, the gene therapy and be like, oh, look, I, I don't have to worry about it. And I don't have to have one whole extra bag of factor. I can, you know, put a couple of treatments in my carry-on instead. So it's, 
I'll have to let you know how it goes. And and yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully I make it back and I don't, you know, end up becoming some bearded jungle man. <laughs> Although the pictures of that would be quite compelling. Do, are you feeling similar <laughs> to how you have felt in the past with a big trip coming up or does this feel differently to you? Yeah, it definitely does feel different. Uh, I was able to do a sort of 24-hour overnight trip to Zurich earlier this year. And I know it's only a one-day thing, but it was a pretty big moment to be like, oh, wow, I, haven't ha- I didn't take any factor there, you know, developed country in Europe and only a short flight away. And just, that's the thing, even for the shorter trips, you still had to, pre-gene therapy, I would have still had to kind of factor in, pardon the pun, those things mm-hmm. I needed to prepare for a trip and, and take into account. So th- this definitely does feel different. I feel like the the hemophilia element of things is is further in the back of my mind and I and I don't feel like it's necessarily going to come to the forefront of my mind at any point. You know, I'll do the necessary prep for it, but it's nowhere near as it, it feels like it's going to be nowhere near as big a part than it would have been in the past. And I've sorted out hiking the Inca Trail at the end of the trip and again being like, oh, wow, you know, it's a three, uh, four-day trek and three nights and I won't have to be, you know, sitting in a tent on the Inca Trail trying to find a vein to get my factor in. I mean, part of me did kind of relish that. I, I was a bit of a, a showman for being like, yeah, look where I can do my factor and I guess part of me will <laughs> miss that just so I, I won't have any cool pictures for the Instagram. Um, looking looking really cool nailing that vein but uh, that's a I think you'll nice, be able to find nice problem to not have other, anymore a hundred percent and the Amazon is filled with opportunities for cool pictures to populate Instagram with you don't need to access your vein though appreciate that you were always willing to do that <laughs> I was generally willing, but my veins would just shrivel up and I would get far too anxious. And I don't know how many successful public demonstrations I had so much as I would talk through hemophilia while unsuccessfully poking myself and then having to say, all right, well, it kind of goes like this. Goodbye. So that's a, that's been my take of that situation. What does this mean for your life, though, beyond just this year? So two years, not a long time, but long enough now that it's not brand new. But we've also been you know, semi-trapped globally for the duration of this period. You have this big trip coming up here in just a matter of weeks. You'll get back from that. And then what does this mean? What does gene therapy in your life and this and what you're experiencing mean for where you go from here? It's hard to think that far ahead into the future. You know, I guess you, you've got a, maybe a few years on me, Patrick. Uh, about, about okay, I, to, we don't have to. We can end this right now if we're going to get ageist about it. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I wanted to approach that one delicately, but I guess it's it's one of those things. It's like that interview question, where do you see yourself in five years? And it's such a weird question to be asked. I always find it, I'm <laughs> it not really question. someone who plans massive, massively in advance um, with lots of things. And I think it comes back to, to what you said about opportunities. I just feel like having had gene therapy and having had a a pretty good result, there are going to be more opportunities for me in the future to consider. I don't know specifically what they are yet, but I'm I'm really interested in in that potential. (sighs) What do you want from your future? What are you interested in pursuing most? And how that how might that be more possible for you now? 
That's so tricky. I mean, part of me has definitely always wanted... If at all. Part of me has always wanted to work abroad. Again, I think it's, you know, it's not something that's impossible if you've got haemophilia and haven't had gene therapy. But I, I think it becomes a lot easier if you have had gene therapy and you have a, a good level of factor in the tank and aren't requiring regular treatment. You know, I'd love to go on on more longer haul trips that would be something I'd really like to do. I never really did a, a proper sort of traveling experience that a lot of my friends did when they left school or university. So that's that's something I've always considered. I think just sort of the, the everyday today life thing is is the sort of thing that pops into my mind in terms of just how much easier things could be for me now. So, you know, that getting used to that whole leaving the house mm-hmm. and, and going, oh, I haven't taken my factor. Oh, wait, I don't need to. Like, that's already, part of me is already starting to feel normal again about that. So now I don't even double guess it. I don't go, oh, I need to take my factor. It's like my brain has slowly started getting used to the fact that I can just leave the house and go to the gym without taking a treatment. I can go for a, a run without needing treatment, whatever it may be. And I, I, I'm just looking forward to seeing how many other things maybe in day-to-day life start to you know, the haemophilia element of it will start to fade into the background and and I start to, you know, experience life, you know, without severe haemophilia. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have any plans for like when I want to get married by, when I want to buy a house, when I want to have kids, you know, all of those things aren't stuff that's crossing my mind right now. Um, you know, and I have said to people like, this is the first time in my life that I can experience life without severe hemophilia so I kind of want to like maximize and make the most of it and maybe I'm not ready to like settle down yet but uh, but again I don't know things change in a very short space of time so mm. anything could happen I guess I, and I think it is just my mind remains open to the to the opportunities that gene therapy could potentially afford me now you know it's interesting and, and maybe this is where we'll start to wrap up I was kind of pushing you toward what are some some big ambitions or, or big things that may now be possible? And and you brought it back to how day-to-day life could be made easier. And I have had a similar experience, not with gene therapy. I've had this, you know, I had an inhibitor when I was young, and then I was able to get on prophylactic factor. And then as I had other, you know, uh, evolutions in my treatment plan, finding, oh, I'm even less encumbered by hemophilia. I'm even less encumbered. And then recently, as listeners to Bloodstream know, I got a cortisone shot in my ankle weeks ago, and that has been a game changer. And just this past weekend, I was with my little one-year-old for the first time, and it was just the two of us for the weekend. Mom was at work and, and out of the state, so it's just the two of us, well, and the baby, all respect to Russell, or the, the baby, the dog, all respect to Russell. He is a, he's kind of become the baby, though. The baby's become a toddler <laughs> yeah, gonna, and is racing towards becoming a child. <laughs> yeah, he's become more of a baby recently, but that's a, that's a whole other matter. But what I was able to do with her from the moment that mom was gone, we were able to go outside and go on a long walk and keep it busy, keep, it, keep us active, keep us going around. We were able to go to the beach. You know, I live in Southern California, after all. Why not make use of the beach? Well, it's not easy for me to, with generally... Uh, carrying a baby and the dog and it puts a lot of stress on my ankles and I was able to do a lot of activity this weekend because of what's going on in my ankle right now and it I appreciate that while these evolutions to our treatment may enable the top end of our potential in a way that we just previously couldn't realize you you can now travel for work in interesting ways that you couldn't previously but it's interesting. I wonder how many of us, and I suspect the majority 
of us, I suspect, would actually cite the day-to-day little life activity and moments as that which is most consequentially impacted when we step forward into a new evolution of our treatment and management of hemophilia. And so I appreciate that you call that out. You know, gene therapy for all of its sizzle as a discussion topic and as a novel therapeutic, what's most exciting about it, right? One distillation of your response was essentially, it lets day-to-day life just be easier. And that's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've heard from people who've who've got children who went through gene therapy, like a lot of them mentioned their reasons for it and then the benefits after having had it revolved around their kids and being able to do stuff with them. And I think, you know, it's just very, mm. very human things that are important to people. And, you know, like you say, there's all this sizzle around gene therapy and, you know, what 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 could it mean? What is the amazing things you could go on to do? And and I, I I don't I think those those little things are just as important, and I think that that really emphasizes just how much hemophilia does potentially have an impact day to day. But as a community, we're just very good at sort of dusting ourselves off and cracking on and and you know getting on with mm-hmm. things. And oh, it's hemophilia, but it's part of my life, and I just deal with it. But we've never known anything different. So all of a sudden, to experience something different is is a big deal. And and I'd also preface it with the fact that, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, be born in the UK at the right time and have still have had access to pretty good treatment for most of my life. And I think when I think of bigger ambitions and things that I'd like to go on to do, I'd like to think that even if I still had severe haemophilia, I wouldn't let that stop me. And I think haemophilia, in a way, having it has also been a big driver to carry on and and try and, you know, prove people wrong and achieve things. And I don't think I've lost that side of things now that I've had gene therapy. If anything, I, I'm more fueled by the fact that I think genetic medicine has such huge potential for the bleeding disorders community, but also the wider rare disease community where there are people who arguably need an intervention like gene therapy way more than than people with haemophilia. And I think since having gene therapy, thinking of big future ambitions is to to really sort of place myself as a as a leading advocate for this technology in the community. And, you know, obviously with a a, a balanced, measured way of talking about it, but I I'd love to see it continue to develop and, and impact more people's lives and you know, just because I've had gene therapy does not mean I am checking out from the haemophilia community. If anything, quite the opposite. And um, I'm I'm involved, and I and I want to try and contribute to that conversation. Well, and speaking of, you've done just that with the Global Haemophilia Report, episode two on novel therapies, including gene therapy, is available right now. Go to bloodstreammedia.com, check out the Global Hemophilia Report or look up Global Hemophilia Report anywhere you find your podcasts. You will hear Luke contribute to that episode. You can also hear Luke and I on the HemeNet podcast. If you check out HemeNet's HemeCast podcast, we'll have a link in the program notes. Luke and I recently did a conversation for that show as well. Uh, Luke, I know you're out of town uh, almost immediately here, but when you come back later in the spring, early summer, Let's have you back on the show. Let's give ourselves some time and we'd just love to hear about the experiences. So maybe you won't be able to take pictures of yourself, you know, hitting a vein by a tree or something, but maybe you can journal about all the little moments that you want to make sure to talk about when you come back and we'll have you on Bloodstream to share them with us. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. And hopefully I'll see 
many of your listeners and, and yourself at WFH. Thanks again to Luke for joining me here on Bloodstream and for contributing to the Global Hemophilia Report as well. I should also mention that I was Luke's guest on the HemeCast. That is uh, HemeNet's podcast called HemeCast. It's got that UK spelling of hemophilia, so it's H-A-E-M-C-A-S-T. (laughs) There is also a link in the program (laughs) notes, so if you want to hear Luke and I keep talking, and we talk about some different stuff. Um, then you can listen to us on that. And I got to mention, I was listening on the, in the car on the way in this morning, our beloved Max Feinstein is on the Two Disabled Dudes podcast this week with Sean and yes. Kyle. Great interview, Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month, talking about his journey in music and advocacy. Um, as uh, Sean says early in the show, he looks like a musician, he sounds like <laughs> a musician, and it's 100% true. Max and his full Max on the Two Disabled Dudes podcast. Go yes. listen to that. Thank you, Nina, Maria. Thank you, Josh, for your contributions. Thank you, Sanofi, for your support. And of course, of course? Of course. Of course. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Uh, I thought we were going to cut that, but maybe we're not going to no, cut that. No, no. Leave it in. <laughs> Amy, what's happening next time on Bloodstream? We have so much stuff coming up in the next several weeks. It's almost ridiculous. Uh, next episode, you're going to get some stuff. You're going to get some more thalassemia stuff. Oh, you're on a run. Oh, we're on a run. That community is great. We'll also hear from Brian Omahani, mm-hmm. a legend. And then we'll we'll talk about um, hemophilia in particular on social media, which I am very excited to get into. And then <laughs> we're going to be at HFA. So we yes. have like a cavalcade of things from HFA. We'll preview a little bit coming up next uh, next episode, but make sure to... Make sure to stay tuned in the next, like, month. Bloodstream's going to be lit, we y'all. we got a lot of stuff going on, as kind of as usual these days. For sure. But as far as today's concerned, with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with family, friends, and colleagues. And join us again on April 8th ahead of our Live from HFA episode dropping on April 22nd. Hey, you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss a little bit more? Is there an expert or guest that you're dying to hear from? Want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream Media's podcast or Believe Limited's films, which there's be on the lookout. (laughs) There's casting stuff coming down the pipe. We'll be emailing y'all. So be be aware. We might come to your town to film you and hopefully Josh will press record when we're at your town. (laughs) Email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can follow myself and Patrick, of course, on all of the things, including LinkedIn, because we all do LinkedIn. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) And I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Borg. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.